All right, well, good evening. Welcome back to our Revelation Bible study. I appreciate uh, Christian up there in the sound booth, so we got much better sound quality today, as well as better video. So last time I was teaching this last week, I was using my iPad, and you couldn't see the screen, and the sound quality was horrendous for those watching online. And uh, for those in the service here with me, of course, I don't, I don't know that it mattered too much to you, but we're going to move forward now. I did tell you that I would have an outline available for you to uh, cover in detail what I discussed last week. The outline's been handed out here in the building, and I have it up there on the screen for those watching online. I want to briefly go over it again. We have uh, at the beginning the church age. That's where we're at currently. I believe that the next major event is the rapture of the church. I will give you biblical reasons why I believe that. We're not there yet. We'll come to that point. So if you find yourself believing that the rapture of the church takes place at a different time, we will have that conversation, I promise you. I will probably give you the reasons why you might think it is mid-trib. If I miss a reason, you could raise your hand and give me your thoughts at that time at the end of our discussion. But when I do talk about pre-trib, mid-trib, or post-trib, I give all of the reasons why different people land in the various areas of, of when they think the rapture is going to take place. So I would be what's called pre-trib, meaning I believe the rapture will happen before the tribulation really gets started. Some people believe in mid-trib. They think there's about three and a half years of the tribulation. Then the church is raptured. And some people believe in post-trib, and that means you go through the entire tribulation period, and the church is raptured at the end, and then immediately returns with Christ at his second coming, riding those horses, those white horses that we were told about in Scripture. So I believe the rapture happens next, and then there are seven years of tribulation. That seven years is broken into two parts. You've got the beginning of sorrows, the first three and a half, and the great tribulation, the, the last three and a half. And what splits those two parts? And by the way, when I say three and a half, it's not necessarily to the day. Um, it does seem to the year, if not to the month. Scripture seems to imply to the month, so three years, six months. But whether that's an exact you know, day, I, I couldn't tell you. The Bible does not clarify that. But we are right pretty close to three and a half years when what happens as referred to in the Old Testament as the, the abomination of desolation. Essentially, it's the desecration of the Jewish temple. The Antichrist at the midway point of the tribulation is going to walk into the temple. He's going to set himself up as God and 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 require that everyone worships him as God. It is at this point that the Jews will recognize they have made a mistake. The Antichrist is not their political savior. They never thought he was the Messiah. But when he claims to be the Messiah, and they see that he has not fulfilled really any of the prophecies, they're going to say this guy is not who he claims to be. And this is the point where Christ says, if you find yourself here, run. <laughs> when the abomination of desolation takes place, do not go back home. Run to the hills, run to the forests, hide, because your life will be at stake at this time going forward for the next three and a half years. So, of course, during the whole seven years of tribulation, God is also judging mankind while the Antichrist is causing his own chaos and nations are fighting against each other. That's all happening during this tribulation period. At the end of this tribulation, Christ is going to return. We, the church, will be with him regardless of when you think the rapture takes place. Anyone who believes in a literal interpretation of the metaphors and parables and, and pictures of Revelation believes in a literal second coming because the second coming of Christ is not really preached only in Revelation. It's in the Old Testament. It's, it's given in the New Testament, in the Gospels. So there are plenty of Scripture texts to prove and clarify the second coming of Christ. And most theologians who believe the Bible 
Bible believe it happens at the end of the seven years. Christ will return with this church. He will destroy his enemies. The only ones who will survive the second coming of Christ will be those who are already saved. Now, if they were saved before the tribulation, they're going to be raptured. So the ones who are saved at the end of the tribulation got saved during the tribulation. They will then be ushered into the millennial reign, the thousand-year reign of Christ. I believe the church of Christ will be reigning under Christ. That's when we, I believe we receive our rewards for give this person five kingdoms and two kingdoms and, and let them benefit from the, their service here on earth. I do not believe personally that the church will have eternal kingdoms that we will reign over. Um, we're not some religions that actually teach you're given a planet and you get to watch over the population of your planet. I don't see that in Scripture. I think it's here during this time that God's church is given the opportunity to benefit from their service when they were alive. In our glorified state, we will be allowed to reign under Christ as Christ reigns over the world as the king of the world. At the end of the thousand years, Satan will be loosed from the bottomless pit where he's been bound for the last thousand years. Satan will then go wander through the world, gathering together all the unsaved, bringing them to Jerusalem to march on Christ. It will not be a long battle. Christ will, will just call fire from heaven. They'll be annihilated immediately, and the enemies of Christ will be destroyed once again, and this time for a final war. Uh, all the unsaved of all time will be brought before Christ at the great white throne judgment. This is not a place that you want to be standing in judgment, because if you're standing here, you're unsaved, and there's only one destination. It is the lake of fire. I believe there are various levels of punishment in the lake of fire. We'll talk about that later. But the lake of fire is the lake of fire, and it's none of it's good. All the unsaved will be cast in the lake of fire, whereas all the saved will be ushered into the eternal state with Christ, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, forever. And there will not be a repeat of earth's creation that we get to watch from heaven. It's done. God did this thing, and what it looks like in the eternal state, we don't really have a whole lot of glimpse into that, other than it will be glorious. And the end of Revelation tells us some things that will not be in the eternal state, and the lack of those things alone will be glorious. Let's move on. We did talk about Revelation chapter 1. I'm pretty, I'm pretty sure I like covered the entire chapter. We're going to briefly go over it. Uh, John the Apostle is the one that God used to uh, be giving this inspiration of Scripture. Remember John the Apostle is that same John whom Jesus loved. He's the same Apostle who wrote the Gospel of John, the, the epistles of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. He's also the man who God used to write the book of Revelation. Revelation singular, not plural. It is one singular revelation given by Christ to the Apostle John. Now, some parts of Revelation, Christ himself is speaking, and the Apostle John is writing what he hears Christ say. Other parts, we find that an angel is speaking, and God uses an angel to give some of the vision to the Apostle John, and that kind of happens throughout Revelation. So, it seems that at the beginning, John is ushered into this vision and immediately meets an angel, not Christ. He does see Christ eventually, and we're going to see that here shortly, but until he does, we're told that John is given some, you might say, foundational material. We're told that in verse 3, there's a blessing that comes along with understanding, not just hearing the prophecy, but also um, those that hear the words of this prophecy, he that readeth and heareth, meaning I believe the idea of reading, of course, is just consuming it through the eyes or the ears, but I believe the hearing has a more so to do of embracing internally rather than just going in one ear and out the other. 
essentially there is a blessing in the in the in the desire and the ability to understand what revelation is trying to tell us I told you last time we were together that I believe the blessing is multiple. God's word doesn't really give us exactly what it is. I've told you for me, it gives me every day a renewed sense of purpose when I consider eternity. Whether I consider eternity through Revelation or one of the Gospels, Scripture as a whole, when I have an eternal mindset, an eternal eyesight, I have purpose for that day. I know what I'm doing. I know what I'm doing it for. I am, whatever I'm doing, it does not matter, teaching algebra or preaching the word of God. It's all for the same purpose. It is to influence people towards the cause of Christ. And sometimes the influence is done when I teach algebra by making a connection with them, by, by influencing them in, in a way to get a better grade in math. And then through that influence, my testimony and my opportunity to speak truth at another time, they're more willing to listen. So it's not that I walk into church on Sunday, and now I'm serving the kingdom of God, and then I walk into the math class throughout the week, and now I'm not serving the kingdom of God. Now, I'm serving the kingdom of God both ways. You might say differently, but the end goal is the same. I am here to influence people towards the cause of Christ, towards the kingdom of Christ, first and foremost, towards salvation in Christ. And so Revelation gives me a renewed sense of purpose. It also gives me peace. Now, for those who aren't saved, Revelation will not give you peace. But for those who are, there's a lot of peace here. Knowing, first of all, you won't have to go through it. Secondly, knowing who wins in the end. There's a lot of peace when you see the chaos around you, political chaos, the chaos in Israel, the chaos. By the way, you know, everyone's talking about Israel right now. There have been countries in the world devastated by terrorism for decades, for centuries, nonstop. There are countries in the continent of Africa that are nonstop dealing with kidnappings and murders and rapes uh, from various terrorist groups, some of them within their own country, causing terror to their own people. So this idea that the world is experiencing terror is nothing new. It always has and always will until Christ returns a second time. Of course, new, the news is talking a lot about Israel, and so it's brought to our, the forefront of our vision, but there have been women and children who have been, horrible things have been done to them for hundreds of years, for, for tens of years, for the last years outside of Israel. Israel's now just added to that large group. Why? Because the world is horrible. Because mankind is sinful. And Revelation gives us peace knowing that there will be an end. This is not forever. And when the end comes, Christ wins. And all of those with Christ win. What a blessing. We talked last time about the veil being torn. In uh, Revelation chapter 1, verse 6, we're told that God made us priests and kings. We are both royalty and part of the priesthood of the believers. You do not need to go to God through anyone through me, through your parents, through even, even your aged, wise parents or grandparents. You don't need to go to God through them. You don't need to go to God through the deacons of your church or the trustees or the, the Christians who are a little more mature in their faith. You don't need to go to God through them. You have direct access. Now, there's a benefit to having mature believers in your life. They can help support you. They can help encourage you. They can help give you advice, but they don't need to bring you to God. God is there. The temple uh, c- curtain has been torn. The veil has been torn. The veil that separated the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple where, where common man was not allowed to go. Even the priests were not allowed to go, but once a year and only one of them once a year. Why? Because the Holy of Holies had the presence of God. 
when that veil, when that curtain was torn, essentially God says, my presence is now open to all of mankind. What an amazing thought that for the history of mankind, God's presence was relegated to one spot, and occasionally the Holy Spirit would come upon prophets and some of the kings and some of the judges, occasionally. The Holy Spirit did not dwell in all believers, and God's presence as was in the Holy of Holies, was not discovered throughout the land, you might say. We, the church, are so spoiled, and we don't even know it. Sometimes my kids will complain about a meal or say, oh, we have to go to the amusement park again. Oh, no, how horrible that we have to go have fun with the family again. We just did that two weeks ago. And my wife and I look at each other and shake our heads, and we look and we tell her, because you guys don't have a clue. So there's kids who haven't been to Lake Compounds their entire life, and some of them went twice, and they think it's the awesome thing. And you, You've been going multiple times a summer, really, for the last eight summers, and you're just bored of it. It doesn't mean it's no longer fun. You just have taken it as normal. And we Christians are the same way with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is no less awesome. We've just relegated him to normal. Oh, you know, we got to go worship again. We have to go hear the word of God again. Man, and yet there's people throughout the world that don't have the complete word of God. And if they do, they can't read it. And if they can, they can't understand it because there are no churches because every time a church pops up, the government comes in and kills them all. They would love the opportunity to be in a group of Christians in a safe building with comfortable chairs and be able to worship without fear of people coming in with guns and killing them. They would love that. What would they give for that? And we Christians say, oh, I got to get up and be at church by 11. Oh, no. I can't sleep in until whatever time you think you need to sleep in on Sunday. Oh, no. I can't, I can't spend the day doing whatever I want to do. I need to go to church. Oh, you know, the Holy Spirit's there, but he's also here with me. We just have put him into the normal box because we've been spoiled by it. But what an amazing thing that God tore the temple veil and said, now my presence is available to all mankind, and they can all have access to me directly. And then Christ in Revelation chapter 1, verse 8, he says, On the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the ending, saith the Lord, which was and which was and which is to come the Almighty. What a great title. This is nothing new, Christ be claiming to be the beginning and ending of something. This is a title that he, he would have already been known of him. But the idea that Christ was there at the beginning of time as we see it, God has always existed on more than one occasion now, I've got five kids, almost every one of them at some point as they got older said, Dad, isn't it, isn't it hard to think of God as always existing? Every one of my children have said that now except for the two youngest. And I say, I know, it's really weird, right? It's hard to think God was here a billion years ago, and yet he was here past a billion past that, and an infinity of billions before that. Like, what did God do? I don't know. You know, the Bible doesn't tell us. But our minds cannot comprehend the infinity of God's, of God's existence. But time as we see it, God was already there. And then as time ends, as we see it, when God destroys the heavens and the earth and recreates, God will be there too. And you know, other parts of Scripture reminds us that from the beginning of time as we see it to the end of time as we see it, God is not always there, but God is, God, God is not always, will be always be there, but he also has never changed. His character has remained steady the entire time and will continue to do so. 
God, reverse eight, the end, the Almighty. He has always been the powerful one. He has always been the one in charge. Not once has he stepped down from his throne and allowed someone else to take authority for even a short time. Not once has God ever lost any amount of power at any time to any king, to any queen, to any politician of any type. God has never lost authority to them. God has never been uh, scared of any human creation that might think themselves equal to God. And God is most definitely not scared of any angelic creation who has thought himself equal to God. God created Satan. God will destroy Satan. Satan is the one living in ignorant bliss, considering that he has even a chance against the creator. And how much more ignorant are we, humanity, who think we are in any way equal to God? God is the Alpha and the Omega, God is the beginning and the end. The beginning and end, not just of time, but the beginning and end of your time. When you were conceived, God was there. When you were born, God was there. When you took your first step, God was there. When you had your first really big problem in your life, God was there. When your first relationship fell apart, God was there. At all the firsts in your life, at all the beginnings in your life, God was there. And when the end comes, God will be there. God will not abandon you at the end. God will not remain with you from the beginning to the middle towards the end and then exit stage left right when you come to those final uh, moments of, of life. God will be with you personally to the end. He is the Alpha and the Omega. What a comforting thought. Now, I got a map up here. And this map gives us an idea of where the locations are of what we're talking about because we're pretty soon going to be getting into the uh, various church letters that are found in Revelation chapter 2 and 3. You can find up here on Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. Uh, there's a, I know it's a really small map from when you guys are at here, but Israel's here off to the... So if this is Turkey, Israel's going to be way down here to the right and kind of down. It's going to be Israel down here. Modern-day Turkey is up here, and that's where the seven churches are, where God is going to be... Christ is going to be writing his uh, letters to in Revelation 2 and 3. And the island of Patmos is right off of the coast of Turkey, where the Apostle John is located as he's writing his letters to these churches. Now, although the book of Revelation is available to all mankind, specifically the church of all times, God did originally write it to these seven churches. There is a lot of great truths to be discovered in the seven churches, and uh, we're going to be looking at those. I think you'll be really intrigued to hear of all the things that God has to say. But let's go ahead and move on as we consider what the Apostle John sees in verse 10, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day and heard behind me a great voice as a trumpet. Is God capable of whispering in a still, small voice? Oh, yeah, for sure. Did he not do so with Elijah the prophet? When Elijah had confronted that wicked king Ahab, and it put those hundreds of Baal priests to death by his own hand, by the way. I mean, just consider that alone. How tired would he have been slaughtering hundreds of Baal priests? That's no easy task, I imagine. He was in such a tired state. At the end of the day, now I remember there was a, there was a famine and uh, a drought. 
for years. And remember, at the end of this time, Elijah slaughters the prophets of Baal, calls down fire from heaven, and then tells Ahab it's going to rain. And then when it starts to rain, what does Elijah do? He outruns the chariot of Ahab. As Ahab rides his chariot back to the palace, Elijah runs past him. Multiple feats that, that can only be described as miraculous in one day through one guy. Now, if you've ever had an emotional high, you understand that almost inevitably what follows an emotional high, an emotional low. If you've ever had a physical high, uh, whatever that might have looked like for you and something you're, you've really enjoyed and, and, and it just brought a lot of energy to your body and you had a great time, inevitably what happens? You have a crash, right? The same thing, you know, the sugars and things in our body brings us to a physical high and then a physical low. It's the same thing with spiritual, in my opinion and in my experience. You have a spiritual high. you got to watch out for that spiritual low. A spiritual low is not a state of sin. You're not in sin when you experience a spiritual low. It just means you are repositioning. God did not intend for any Christian to remain on the mountaintop spiritually. Why? Because most of humanity doesn't live up there. And if we lived up there, we'd be like the monks living in caves and, and the Dalai Lama that never speaks to really anyone and just kind of, you know, being one with nature. That's not what God intends for his church. So we don't dwell on the mountaintops of the spiritual condition. We, God brings us up there to get a glimpse of his glory only to allow us to go back down where everyone else is at and to tell them what we saw. But the ride down isn't as fun as the moment at top, was it? And that's the spiritual low. Elijah had an emotional high, physical high, and spiritual high, all in the space of one day. And if you better believe, he had all three lows the next. He went into a deep state of depression. In his deep state of depression, God sends an angel to minister to Elijah. He's fed. He's given some, a meal. He's allowed to rest. He's actually fed more than one time. And then with that food, for many days, he treks to the location God gives him to meet with God. When he meets with God, you've heard the story, right? The, the thunder and, I mean, the, the, the earthquake and the fire and all these things happening. But God was not in those things, these, these loud things. God was not there. And then when they all subsided, we're told a still, small voice. And God was in the still, small voice. That's a great truth. But do not think that God is always the still, small voice. There are times where we need to be still and know that he is God. There are times where we need to just listen to the still, small voice as God speaks into our ear. But there are times where God is anything but a still, small voice. There are times where the glory of God needs to just flow out in ways that our human minds can barely comprehend. And the Apostle John here states, I heard before I saw, and when I heard, it was like trumpets. The volume, the power, the majesty of the voice of God as he speaks. Christ, with a great voice, not a still small voice, of a trumpet saying, I am Alpha and Omega. We've seen that in verse 8. It's reminded in verse 11. And the first and the last. And what thou seest, write in a book and send it unto the seven churches 
which are in Asia. And here they're listed. Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamus, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And then, what a really great thing for God to give us. Because nowhere else in Scripture in the New Testament are we given such a clear description of the glorified body of Christ. Yes, in the Old Testament, the, the, book, or the Old Testament books tell us of Moses' experience with God and, and how it was so awesome and so much glory that Moses could not look God in the face and, and had to look down and, and just being in the presence of God, his, his, his skin shined brightly. So we're given that illusion in the Old Testament. But to give such a clear description of the glorified body of Christ, this is it right here. In all its glory. Because when Christ returns after his death, burial, and resurrection during those 40 days, he seems to return in what would be a subdued state of glory. It doesn't seem that he is returning in this manner. It doesn't seem that, that Christ uh, looks like he does here in Revelation. Probably because he did not want to scare his disciples. Of course, he could have revealed himself in this way. He chose not to. But here we have what I believe is a closer picture to what Christ will look like when we see him in heaven. And here we go, verse 12. I turned to see the voice that spake with me, and being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks. Now, the Bible is going to give us a definition of what those candlesticks are. Before we go further, let me say this. Revelation, I'll remind you again, is full of pictures, full of metaphors, full of parables, illustrations, Revelation is not intended to be taken at all times literally. I do believe a literal interpretation is the best interpretation of Revelation. But when Revelation gives you a description or gives you a deeper understanding of the pictures, then you need to take that description literally. When Revelation does not, then I believe the pictures are literally what John is seeing. Let me explain. Here, John is seeing Christ standing surrounded by seven candlesticks. But we are told that these seven candlesticks in verse 20, we're told that the seven candlesticks which thou sawest are the seven churches. That's at the very end of verse 20. So God tells us what these candlesticks are. So although Christ is literally standing in the midst of candlesticks, metaphorically, Christ is standing in the midst of the churches. And God's word defines that and describes that for us. But there's other parts in Revelation where we're told about armies and what they look like, demonic armies. And there is no explanation of those demonic armies. And God doesn't say, well, these demonic armies are just helicopters flying or, you know, they are man-made or, or men themselves. No, God talks about the earth opening and these demonic armies coming from below. I believe that these are pictures, but they are pictures of what the Apostle John's actually seeing. And I take it literally, they are demonic armies. So there's sometimes where the pictures that John sees are to be taken literally, and sometimes they are metaphors that God describes for us. And I will walk you through which ones I believe should be taken literally because there is no description, and which ones have a description. So here we are. The candlesticks are the seven churches. And I believe that Christ doesn't just stand in the midst of these seven churches at that time. He stands in the midst of all churches. Christ, the Savior of the church, is in the midst of his church. Not without his church, not, not afar from his church. He promised to never leave us nor forsake us. Where the church is, there is Christ. 
where Christ is, there is his church. And then we're told about uh, seven stars. So let's keep going. Verse 13, in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man. Like unto. Now, this is the Son of Man. But the Apostle John is saying, it's like the Son of Man, but not in a way I've ever seen him before. The Apostle John is not stating this is not the Messiah. He's not saying it's not the Christ. It's not the Son of Man. He's just stating this is a way that Christ has never revealed himself before. There is, a, there is a, a similarity to what Christ looked like when he walked the earth. There is a resemblance, but this resemblance is, is slight because the glory of the one I'm seeing now is mind-blowing. Clothed with the garment down to the foot. So if you've wondered, are we wearing clothes in heaven? There's your answer. Yes, we are wearing clothes in heaven. I know there's, you know, the spiritual clothing of the righteousness of Christ. But I think above and beyond that, yes, we are wearing clothes in heaven as Christ is here. And gird about the paps with a girden, golden girdle. That's, that's the waist area. So he's clothed uh, from, from uh, down to the foot with a golden girdle. His head and his hairs were, li- were white like wool, white as snow. And his eyes were as a flame of fire. I believe that when you, when you picture in both the Old and New Testament, including the parables of Christ, the white robes passed out at the wedding, are a reference to the purity of God's righteousness, as opposed to the, the blemishes that are brought through sin and the payment for sin, the, the redness of blood, that these different colors, at least spiritually, mean something. And white robes, white hair, it has this idea of the, the pure righteousness of Christ. And you know what's amazing? Christ wants to pass that on to you for nothing. Christ is not needing anything from you for you to receive this same pure righteousness. All that's required of you is to have faith in Christ. Now, the Bible does talk about repentance as well. And I believe that repentance is attached to faith in the sense of repentance is essentially a change of mind. It's a change of direction. So when you were in your sins, you didn't have a problem with your sins, at least not enough to do anything about it. You, 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 you're, you're, you and your sins were one, unified in your flesh, unified in your sins. When you recognize that there is a Savior, when you recognize that Christ is that Savior, you turn from your sins to Christ. That does not mean you stop sinning. It does not mean you attain any level of perfection on your own. It just means you've turned your direction from following sin to, to the Savior. That, that doesn't mean Christians don't sin. That doesn't mean Christians won't continue to sin. I believe repentance when it comes to salvation is not a promise that, God, I will never sin again. You can't keep that promise. It is not a, not, not a hope that you will sin less because that hope will go up and down. Some days you'll sin more, some days you'll sin less. Your repentance isn't a ceasing from sin or even a diminishing of sin in your life. Your repentance is a turning from sin to the Savior. I need the Savior, I want the Savior, I call on the Savior. As opposed to turning towards sin, who's the Savior? I don't need a Savior, I'm the Savior, I'll save myself. When you face sin, there is no Savior in your life. When you face the Savior, he is the, on, the one and only Savior. It does not mean you are detached from your sin. 
because a change of mind or direction spiritually from sin to the Savior does not eliminate sin in your life still. You still have the flesh in your life. You are still a sinner and will be a sinner to the day you die. You're just a saved sinner. So repentance through faith, unfortunately, does not eliminate the sin in our life. And I do not believe that repentance in faith is the promise that you will try to stop sinning or at least sin less. I believe the, the sinning less happens through sanctification as you draw closer to Christ. That's a journey. That's a process. That happens over time. It is not an immediate, you get saved, and all of a sudden, your, your lifestyle of sin drops dramatically. I don't believe it works like that. But faith in Christ, we're told in Romans chapter 10, it's faith in Christ. We're told in Ephesians chapter 2, it's faith in Christ, not of works, lest any man should boast. It is our faith in Christ that allows us to be given this pure righteousness that Christ displays here in Revelation chapter 1. His eyes are like the flame of fire. Fire, of course, is always associated with extreme consuming, right? Um, almost everything falls under fire. I'm not going to say all. Almost everything falls under fire. Fire is the great consumer, the great natural consumer. And to describe the eyes of Christ like flames of fire gives the impression that the eyes of Christ consume into the innermost parts of our soul. Where in the Old Testament, God says, you look on the outside, I look on the inside. I can see the inside. You have human eyes, I've got eyes of fire. <laughs> I can see what you cannot see. I can see where you cannot see. I can see what you cannot see. God's eyes consume past our outward appearance into who we really are. Verse 15, his feet like unto fine brass, as if they burned in a furnace. That one's a hard, uh, in my opinion, hard one to describe or to explain what it means. I'm sure there's a variety of ideas you could probably search online. And what does it mean, the feet of Christ's being like fine brass burned in a furnace. And I'm sure there's a, there's a bunch of different opinions that would show up. When I come to a place in Revelation where it's an obvious picture and there's no description, I don't really take it into too much account. I don't worry too much about it. When we're talking about prophecy, future events, um, if it doesn't affect your salvation, it's okay to have different opinions especially when the Bible doesn't actually tell us what to think. You shouldn't have a different opinion on what the candlesticks are. The Bible tells us what the candlesticks are. We should all be of one opinion there. You shouldn't have a different opinion when it comes to the stars. We're going to be told what they are. But when it comes to the fine feet brass of Christ, I think we can have different opinions and we'd be all right. My opinion is that it's referring to, you might say, the foundation as Christ stands, his foundation, his feet being fine brass, as opposed to, in the Old Testament, the dream of Daniel, what do you find? The feet being clay, right? And they break apart and so on. Whereas these feet aren't going to be breaking apart. Jesus Christ standing sturdy on foundation that will not be broken. That's how I take it. You're welcome to disagree. We'll talk about it here when this uh, Bible study closes up tonight. And we open up the room for conversation. I'll be happy to hear what you guys have to think. And then verse 15, and his voice is the sound of many waters. When I think of many waters, I think of Niagara Falls. I don't think of just a creek or, a, or even the waves of an ocean. I think of the crashing, powerful waters falling over constantly a large cliff into the basin, the ground. 
And when you're at the foot of the Niagara Falls, conversation is very difficult. You need to raise your voice significantly. And even then, it's hard to hear what the other person is saying. And when you walk away from the falls, you, re you realize, wow, my ears were ringing. I didn't really know until I walked away. There's still that, that noise almost in your ears, just such a powerful noise. So God's voice, both times it's described in Revelation 1, is described with power. Once as the, the, the music that comes from a trumpet and once as the music that comes from nature itself. Verse 16, he had in his right hand seven stars. Out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. Now, again, we're told the seven stars in verse 20, in his right hand are the angels of the seven churches. I'm going to get back to that, the angels of the seven churches. Let's move on. What's coming out of the mouth of Christ? It's a sword. Well, I believe even though uh, Scripture doesn't state here the, what the sword is, I believe we all recognize from other passages of Scripture what the sword is. It's the two-edged sword of the Word of God, of Scripture itself, of truth. Of course, from the mouth of Christ comes truth. He is the truth. Of course, from the mouth of Christ comes the Word of God. He is God, and from his mouth comes the Word. Of course, it's a sword coming from his mouth. And so as the sword is exiting from his mouth, the Apostle John is reminded that everything Christ speaks is truth. I don't need to write down what might happen. I'm going to write down what will happen because Christ says it's going to happen. Now, the Apostle John may not understand all that he's writing, but he knows it's going to happen. The Apostle John, I personally think, had less of an understanding than we do today. Even though he was seeing the vision with his own eyes, 2,000 years ago, many of the things he saw would not have made sense to him. But he knew it was going to happen. And the Apostle John was the guy to write. Remember, when the Apostle John, the Apostle Peter, came to the tomb of Christ, Peter walks in, still seems to have some doubts. The Apostle John sees the grave clothes, sees no Messiah, and immediately believes he's risen again. It doesn't take much for the Apostle John to be convinced. He just needs to know it's of God, and he believes. What a great example to us. Why is it that we need so much convincing, so much reminding? <laughs> it should be sufficient that God says, and we act we submit, we obey, we follow. Now let's go to verse 18. In verse 17, again, he, he, uh, John falls at his feet, and Christ lays his right hand upon him, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, referring to that title of himself again. Verse 18, I am he that liveth and was dead. Behold, I am alive forevermore, amen, and have the keys of hell and death. What a comforting thought to the Apostle John who's been through hell on earth, having been boiled alive in oil by the Romans in an attempt to kill him, the last surviving apostle, all previous apostles, martyred before him, including the apostle Paul. According to church history, there was none still alive at this point. John was the only one. Hell on earth, physically, emotionally, possibly spiritually. And for Christ speaking to John to say, hey, I have the keys of hell. I've got the keys to death. I control them. Satan does not. The Romans certainly do not. The other religious factions, they don't control it. I do. Verse 19, write these things. Write the things which thou hast seen and the things which are and the things which shall be hereafter. Okay. The things you've seen now, write them. 
the things which are about us. That's the letters to the seven churches. Write those. And the things which shall be hereafter. That's chapters 4 to the end of Revelation. Write those. Essentially, Revelation is broken into three parts. Where you're at now, what's going on around you, and what's going to happen down the road. Chapter 1 is the where you're at now. It's the immediate vision that John sees. The things that are, that's the letters to the seven churches in chapters 2 and 3. The things that will be, chapters 4 beyond. That's the outline, you might say, basic outline to the book of Revelation as God gives it here. Now let's go back to this idea of the angels. So we're told in verse 20, the mystery of the seven stars which thou sawest in my right hand. What are they? The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. You got a picture there up on the screen. And it's very possible that John saw something similar to this where there literally are like, you know, stars in the hand of Christ. And Christ is saying each of these stars represents each of the churches that you'll be writing a letter to on my behalf. But the question is, what are the angels that Christ refers to here? You see, there's really only two conclusions, I believe, that you can come to. First conclusion is that the angels of the seven churches are angelic spiritual beings. Most of the time, when you see angels in the Bible, you are looking at angelic spiritual beings. But the, the word Greek word for angel actually literally is just messenger. Angels are messengers. They are much more than that. They are warriors. They are protectors. They are comforters. The Holy Spirit is the great comforter, capital C. But angels are also comforters. God is the great protector, capital P, but angels are also protectors. They are guardian angels over children, Christ says. I believe the angels are, are not God in any way, nor do they have the attributes of God, you know, the ability to be at all places at all times and so on. But just as humans can reflect some of the characteristics of God, I believe angels can also reflect some of the characteristics of God. And as God is the great comforter, angels are the little comforters. And is that also supposed to be true for us? Are we not also supposed to comfort one another? Little c, lowercase c. And as God is the, the uh, great protector, are we not also to protect the innocent? The Old Testament law was very clear on that. And the church, are we not to oversee and to help and to assist those in, who, who cannot help themselves? Financially, emotionally, physically. Angels reflect some of those characteristics of God. And one of the things the angels did was bring messages. We find that throughout Old and New Testament. They're constantly saying, thus saith the Lord, here's a message from God. Of course, one of the most famous ones is, is Mary, uh, the virgin that she's told about Christ, right? But that is just one of many times in Scripture where an angel is bringing a message from God. Angel means messenger. There is a slight possibility that when Christ is referring to angels here, you could replace that word angel with messenger. It would mean the same thing, say the same thing. And it could be referring to human messengers. I say slight. I personally do not believe that is the case. And I'm going to tell you why. If the angels of the seven churches are either spiritual angelic in nature or physic, physical humans in nature, then we have to, I think, ask ourselves which one is more likely to be the case. Because this is another instance where the Bible, God, Christ, does not tell us which one. But when you look at chapter 2, verse 1, who is Christ writing to? To the church? No. To the angel of the church. 
that is the strongest argument for these angels being actually messengers and human messengers. In my opinion, probably the only argument for the fact that these angels are actually humans that God is writing to on behalf of the churches. Now, I say the strongest argument doesn't mean it is a strong argument. It's the strongest one because, in my opinion, it's the only one. (laughs) There might be more. You might feel like there's other reasons why these angels might be pastors or humans. And again, in about 10 minutes, 15 minutes, we're going to stop the live stream, and we're going to talk about your opinion here in the audience of why you think it might be one or the other. I'll ask your opinion and give it to me, but I'll give you mine now. Let's talk about these angels being humans first. And I'm going to talk about why they are probably not. I've already told you why they might be, and it's the only reason. Because if an angel is a messenger, God is essentially giving a message to the messengers of the churches. And it it, it makes sense, it could make sense, that these are human messengers who God is using to pass the message on to the church of each of these locations. The problem, and there's many problems with these angels being humans, and I'll give them to you. Problem number one is each of these churches is actually a location, and the location is a massive city. Pergamos, Thyatira, Philadelphia, Ephesus, Smyrna, so on. They are massive cities. They're not small villages. They're not part of Meriden. These cities would have been tens of thousands or more. And I guarantee you, I guarantee you, there was more than one fellowship of believers in each of these cities. These cities would have pockets of fellowship of believers, like there are pockets of believers here in Meriden and and Cheshire and Wallingford and wherever you might live. There are pockets of small churches who meet, but we are all one church, right? Are we not? We're all one church. There's, There's not multiple churches of God. There is one church that meets in multiple locations. But each of the locations where the church meets, God has established that there would be leadership within that church to shepherd guide, serve, direct, assist, encourage, exhort that particular location. But I do not see in Scripture where it is my job as a pastor to pastor the city of Meriden. God has called me to the church location of Meriden Hills Baptist Church, singular location. The problem with these angels being a human is there's one angel per, not church, per city of churches, (laughs) Yes, the church of Philadelphia, because when God sees his church, he just sees one church. But there would have been multiple congregations in Philadelphia, not just one. And so what does that mean? Well, if you think it's a human, that means there's one human who essentially all the churches look to in the city and say, you're our pastor. You're the the city pastor. I don't see that in Scripture. I think that's a very dangerous direction to go. Especially when Scripture doesn't tell us these angels are humans, to go down that road essentially elevates one guy to the, to the level of what you might call a bishop of the town. Of course, there are some religions who love that idea. So there are some religions who thrive on that idea, that there is one person who has say over an entire town of churches. And I'm not from one of those religions, and I don't see that played out in Scripture. Second problem with the angel being a man is that essentially we're obviously talking about a spiritual leader, And a spiritual leader in a church, whether you call them pastor or not, is pastor. Pastor, elder, bishop, you know, you call them what name you want. 
that's the role, a spiritual leader within a church who serves and guides and directs according to 1 Timothy chapter 3 and Titus. That's the, that's the pastor of the church. When you start thinking of the pastor of the church as an angel, you are elevating that pastor to some supernatural level. And that happens a lot. There's a lot of churches who do exactly that. The pastor can do no wrong. The pastor is God's man. Oh, no, no. Dare I say, the pastor is God's angel. Two men. He's something more than us. He's just a little bit more uh, in the spiritual realm or a little bit more, uh, has a little bit more of God than we do. Maybe is a little bit closer to God. If not, dare, dare I say blasphemy, he's a little bit more of God. There are religions that would say such a thing. And there are Christians who would think at least some of what I just said. There are Baptist churches who just outrightly proclaim it. Do not dare, do not ever speak against God's man. Because if you do, he'll call down bears who will annihilate you and consume you. And he'll call down fire from heaven and destroy you. God's man cannot be messed with. They will say, God's man is under God's authority. And if anyone's going to mess with God's man, it will be God. And if God doesn't mess with God's man, then you dare not do that. I mean, these things are outrightly said in Baptist churches. I don't see that in Scripture. You know what I do say? I see Christ telling the apostles, hey, make sure you uh, check out the fruits of your leaders because if their fruit doesn't match what they say, they're a bunch of false prophets, don't follow them. In fact, he actually literally says, you'll know them by their fruit. You know what's ironic to me? Almost every time a preacher uses that passage in the Gospels, you'll know them by their fruit, he's using it in reference to the congregation. And he's saying to the congregation, I know which of you are saved or not because the Bible says I'll know you by your fruit, and some of you, I'm not seeing your fruit. And so you get your act together or get saved, one or the other. These are the preachers telling the congregation, whereas that passage in context was Christ saying to the congregation, you tell that to the preacher. You use that verse towards the preacher. The preacher doesn't use it towards you. You tell the preacher, wait a second, you preach a good game, but I see you during the week, and you're not the guy that you preach to be on Sunday. This is not the place where you get out, we want a different preacher. That's how that verse is supposed to be used. But if the pastor is God's angel, you wouldn't dare say it, let alone think it, right? You're not going to think saying that. It's a dangerous path to go when God's servant is viewed as God's angel within the church. It's a dangerous path to go when a pastor is the pastor of a city, as would be the case here, to the angel singular of Smyrna, Ephesus, Philadelphia, Thyatira. And finally, can the word angel be messenger and could could it refer to a human? Sure, it could and yes, it could. But when you see something like this, a a spiritual vision where an angel is mentioned, it is always referring to a spiritual angelic being. In the Old Testament, when you see angels mentioned within a vision, they are angels, not people. In the New Testament, when you see angels being mentioned in a spiritual vision, like with Mary and with Joseph and with the shepherds, it's an angelic being. And what are we in right now? We're in a spiritual vision. 
So if we follow the pattern of Scripture, although the word angel could mean messenger, every time there's a vision, every time there's an announcement from God uh, dealing with this kind of thing, it's always an angelic being, not human in nature. I think that's one of the greatest arguments, aside from the fact that it's the opposite of everything I've told you from the human side, that it makes complete sense that God would have, you might say, an angel overseeing all of the Christians in one town, that God would assign one, your town is merited. It makes a lot more sense that God would assign an angelic being to do that than a human to do that. It also takes away this idea, this, this unnatural, unscriptural awe of the man of God, as is the title often used towards pastors, which is a really strong title I don't like. I wouldn't let the church call me the man of God. I wouldn't wear a T-shirt that said the man of God. Because either we're all wearing the t-shirt, men and women of God, or none of us are wearing it. Because if only one wears it, again, that's elevating one person above everyone else. So I believe very strongly, extremely biased towards the idea that these are angelic beings that God has assigned over each city to have watch and care over the churches in that city. And God is about to give some pretty intense information about each city of churches. And he's giving it to the angel. And he's saying to the angel, if the people that you have care over, angel, if the city of churches that you watch over do not correct themselves, there are seven churches. And for five of them, if you do not correct, if they do not correct, pretty severe judgment from I will close the church down to being the least severe to I will kill them being the most severe. Yes, literally some of these churches, the judgment is I will go in and I will kill them. These are the churches of God we're talking about. Others, it was just a, if they continue down this road, I'm going to close them down. They won't continue operating. I do not believe God is giving this extreme judgment to the churches directly. He's giving it to the angel saying, do what you are allowed to under the authority I've given you to get their attention. Because if these humans don't turn back to me, their end, one way or the other, is around the corner. And that is the end of Revelation chapter 1. We'll begin next time we're together looking over the churches of uh, Revelation in Revelation chapter 2 through 3. The seven churches, beginning with Ephesus. Now, I will say this. It's kind of an introductory into next week. There are some people who believe that each of the seven churches represents a, a time on the historical timeline of the last two centuries. And that the time of the, the church of Ephesus represents like the first 100 years or so of church history. And then the church of Smyrna represents the, the next two to 300 years following. And then the church of Pergamos represents the next few hundred years after that. And then the church of Thyatira represents like the next 500 years of human history. There are some who read a whole lot deeper into Revelation 2 and 3 than God's word gives us the authority or even the encouragement to do so. And there are some that say when you read about each of these churches, just look at church history and you'll see a comparison between the church and church history of that time. Except the problem with that idea is it's not in Scripture. God said to each of the seven churches, which did all exist during that time. The second problem is 
There is a way to, you might say, uh, mess with the numbers and mess with the facts. You can almost make anything look mathematically viable when you have control of the numbers. All right? Anyone can, you can might say, cook the books. Well, if you only want to look at certain parts of church history, then sure, you could, you could have a strong point of view that each of these churches, when it, when it describes them, for example, the last church, Laodicea. Laodicean church is a church that is, that is uh, not doing anything for God, that is consumed with the pleasures of this life, thinks that they're okay, but God says you're spiritually naked, you're spiritually hungry, you're spiritually thirsty, you're spiritually sick, you're spiritually blind, but you think everything's good. Oh, most definitely Laodicea describes the churches of today, right? We would think that. Except maybe only if you're talking about the churches of the United States of America. You get other parts of the world and you see churches that, just, that, are, just, that are a lot closely, uh, closely a, a lot closer in alignment to the church of Smyrna than they are Laodicea. The church of Smyrna was the persecuted church. It was a church who was dying in mass, martyred for Christ. Oh, I would, I would agree. The churches in the United States of America are not, have very little in common with the Church of Smyrna. Very little in common. We have a lot in common with the Church of Laodicea. And that's the point that's being made. That each of these churches have a lot in comparison to the timelines of church history. Except for the fact that the Church of Laodicea only has a lot in, in common with certain churches in the world. Not all churches in the world. There are plenty of churches in the world who are anything but the church of Laodicea. They love God dearly. They are persecuted and killed by their, their neighbors and other religions daily. They are not the Laodicean church. And to say otherwise is just showing your ignorance. And during the times where there were churches being persecuted on a world level, you might say, there still existed churches like Laodicea not being persecuted and loved this life more than anything else. I believe that every generation of Christians throughout the world has available to them all seven types of churches mentioned in Revelation 2 and 3. Throughout church history, if you could travel the world, you would find all seven churches spread throughout. Not this idea that for, from A.D. 100 to 400, there were only Smyrna churches. Not this idea that from 83 or 400 to 80, 700, whatever it is, there are only Pergamos churches everywhere. That's the idea that's preached by some. That's a lie. It's ignorance. It's not true. Um, God's word is telling us these seven churches existed, and I believe God chose these seven churches because he knew that essentially most churches, not all churches, could see themselves reflected in one or more of these churches. And so when God gives his thoughts to these seven he is giving his thoughts to all churches throughout all time, including ours, Meriden Hills, and those in surrounding communities. For those watching online, thank you for joining us. That concludes our message, part one of our Revelation Bible study. We'll continue with part two next week as we look into chapter two. Have a good night.